there's so much demand there's so much pressure to get things out the door quickly quickly seems to supersede doing it securely Today on TechNado, we're talking with Security Weekly's Jeff Mann. We're going to hear all about his day job and learn from 30 years' experience in the IT industry. It's all coming up on TechNado, starting right now. Hello and welcome to TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, joined here by Don Pazette in Don Pazette's office. Don, how you doing? Hey, I am, uh, well, I'm in my office where it's exceptionally hot because of all the lights, but it's also hot because we've got a great interview lined up. Yeah, we got new lights. It's pretty exciting. I'm, <laughs> we look good, don't we? Um, but uh, yeah, this is someone that we actually talked to, I guess not on the podcast, but uh, we talked to last year when we were out at Wild West Hackenfest. It was, it was you and Daniel at the time, and yep. and so this is someone we've got some history with. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I originally met Jeff Mann at Paul Security Weekly, right? Uh, you know, I've been out there to their studios a couple of times, and he's he's a, a regular host over there. Uh, great guy, uh, just a, a font of knowledge. He's been involved in IT security for a long, long time. So he brings a pretty neat perspective versus a lot of the the people that are out speaking about all this rapid change. He kind of sees all the trends from a, a much larger view, which I always value. Uh, but we, we run into him at conferences. Um, Wild West Hackenfest is a, a great example of that. Uh, he's just a, a great guy all around to talk to. So it's, it's a, a neat chance to kind of catch up with him and see how things have changed over the last year. Yeah, and I brought up his LinkedIn page, and he just keeps scrolling and scrolling for all the you know cool experience. And, and every one, you're like, oh, wow, I want to ask him about that and ask him about that. So uh, we do get to ask him about a lot of those things. So let's go ahead and take a look at that interview that's coming up right after this on TechNado. I'm James Packer. I'm the general manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. I used IT Pro TV extensively in my last place. It grew very well, helped upskill the team. I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training and last year alone they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. All right, welcome back to TechNado and as promised we are now here with Jeff Mann. Jeff, how are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. And uh, we were talking a little bit earlier. We we saw you just about a year ago, or Don did, I guess, uh, out in Deadwood at Wild West Hackenfest. And mm. uh, and back then we got a chance to kind of ask you, you know, predictions about the next year that was coming up. And uh, I don't know, what do you think? Did you did you get most of those right? <laughs> do you remember what, what you said? Yeah. I have no idea what I said. <laughs> well, I will say they were all right. Uh, we went back and checked, and every single thing was right. But uh, yeah, how's the the last year been for you? What have you been up to? Well, it's been an interesting year for me. I, uh, after my uh, foray into vendor land, being a subject matter expert, and uh, sort of uh, bouncing between self-employment and underemployment for about a year and a half, decided, you know, what I really miss uh, more than anything is being customer-facing and trying to help companies out with their security issues. And so I. Uh, called my old boss who I used to work with five years ago before I uh, was teased away to go work for Tenable. And uh, he was no longer at the same company where we used to work, but he'd set up a shop at a, at a company uh, that 
I'd never heard of, I don't think he'd ever heard of, but it's a company called Online Business Systems. It's based out of Winnipeg, and uh, they let him basically start a commercial consulting practice, risk and risk security and, and compliance type of, of uh, operation. So uh, I said, hey, you know, I want to get back in consulting. Do you have any uh, openings? He's like, you know, funny you should ask. We're actually uh, landing a big uh, contract in, within the next couple weeks, and they're in your backyard. So the planet's all aligned. And I went back into the consulting world, and uh, you know I'm happy to I'm I'm happy to be customer facing again, and I'm I'm back to you know doing teaching and educating about what security is all about, primarily from a PCI perspective. Although uh, uh, in the council's infinite wisdom, I am no longer qualified to be a QSA, even though I've got 35 years of experience and was a QSA for almost 10 years. Uh, they now require. Uh, certifications to be a, a QSA, and I sort of, uh, as a matter of principle, uh, coming from where I've come from in my past, uh, don't ever want to get a CISSP, and, and so far it's working out. So I'm a, I'm a junior QSA, associate QSA, they call it, and intend to be that uh, until somebody insists that I do something differently. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you'll get to be a QSA when you grow up. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but you, know, you always I always think that when you hear like a junior, you know that's uh, anyhow unfortunate. Someone with uh, make your, it someday yeah. your <laughs> vast field of experience. Now uh, let's talk about that experience because last time we talked, um, you know, you, you obviously have a pretty heavy background in PCI compliance and and areas yep. like that. Uh, but the big talk of 2018 has been GDPR. So how mm -hmm. uh, have you been dealing with that? Has that been a lot of relearning for you, or, or is it all? still rotating really around that world of PCI compliance? Well, for me personally, I'm still doing uh, mostly PCI consulting advisory work. Uh, GDPR, uh, you know, newsflash, uh, you know, there's nothing really new about security. I've been in the business for 35 years, and because... Uh, you know, somebody put out a, a compliance standard that says you need to protect a certain type of data doesn't really change the fundamental principles of how do you do data security. Now, it may have been ignored, uh, and, and in my opinion, it has been largely ignored in the, in the private sector anyway uh, for the better part of ever. Um, but that doesn't mean the, the fundamental principles aren't still there. Uh, in fact, the, a talk that I've been giving off and on for the last year or two uh, talks about uh, sort of the things that I learned in my background, and I started in the DoD many, many years ago, back in the early 80s, and the the way that security was done, mostly before computers were very commonplace, when it really was data security and it was mostly printed matter and locking things in safes and having layers of protection, meaning uh, you know locked doors and offices and and uh, protected buildings and sec you know security fences around the building and such. Um, I've been reflecting and, and, and realizing, you know, there's a lot of lessons that I learned from the DOD world in terms of data security and data protection that in, in the beginning of what we used to call Internet security, and now we call that other thing, I'll try to avoid saying it. You, could, you guys can use the, the C word, but I won't. Um, but, you know, from the very beginning, a lot of people that were experts in security came out of the DOD or came out of the government. And... Uh, 
you know, while we knew how to do security, it never translated well into the commercial world. There was too much, uh, and I experienced this often as a consultant. There was too much, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need to understand security. Just tell me what blinky box I need to buy, and how many, and where to put it, and what color is the light supposed to be. And, and, you know, and frankly, in the early days, it was, oh, you're going to be on the internet, you need a firewall. And then shortly after that is, oh, if you're going to have a network running behind the firewall, you need to know what all your vulnerabilities are. So you need to run a scan engine. Oh, and by the way, people might get break through the firewall, so you need to have intrusion detection, and you need to have monitoring, and it's gone on and on and on and on. So uh, if I was a commercial company in this world today, I might be a little bit fatigued at how many quote-unquote solutions are out there. And if, if you've walked the floor at Black Hat or RSA, I don't know how anybody makes heads or tails of it. So in, in my uh, reclining years, as it were, I, I'm trying to go back and say, hey, maybe there's a few lessons that we never quite learned from DOD security. Uh, you know, maybe let's focus on that for a little while and, and pay some, at least talk about it and discuss it, because I don't see a million other products coming out there, a million other solutions to solve a million other problems. That doesn't seem to be working because it's it you know barely a day or a week goes by before you know some other major breach has been announced from from companies very often that a lot of us in the industry say, wow, even them, I, I thought that they knew better. I thought they were doing things right, type of thing. There's there's certainly exceptions to all of that, but that's kind of a high level of where my head's been at the. the the last year or so. Well, you know, I, I'll certainly agree with you in that GDPR doesn't doesn't really push anything new, but there are some boundaries that it sets that are pretty aggressive. And the, the one that I mm -hmm. get the most questions about is the uh, three-day breach disclosure policy. Uh, that right. I, I think it would be a rare company prior to GDPR that would disclose within just three days. They'd want to do their full research and evaluation and, and, and get all of their forensics done before they actually disclose. So how are you finding, are companies having to like just rebuild their disclosure process altogether? Are, are companies just violating that and, and saying, we'll deal with it when that happens? Or what, what's the uptake <laughs> you're seeing? There, there's, well, you know, frame of reference is PCI, and PCI also has a requirement for uh, notification. Don't quote me off the top of my head. Uh, I want to say it's seven days, but, you know, or maybe it's 30 days. But whatever it is, the reality is most companies that have gone through a, a, a breach of credit card data, uh, usually it's the card brands or the payment processors coming to them saying, uh, you know, Houston, we have a problem, and it's you. So it's always been kind of funny to me that companies are on the hook for breach disclosure, and they're supposed to they're supposed to disclose it to the card brands when the card brands, more often than not, are the ones telling them about it. Now that that differs slightly with GDPR, but in terms of uh, you know planning perspective, uh, disaster recovery, uh, all that all that type of planning that goes into it. You know, for the companies that I've been exposed to uh, and, and discussions I've had with other industry professionals, uh, I would say it's more the category of people aren't doing a lot yet because they're kind of waiting to see uh, what's going to happen, you know, when breaches start to occur that are GDPR related and, and what are the lawsuits going to look like and what's the case law going to, uh, you know, come down to in terms of amounts of fines and, and the severity of the fines and, and stuff like that. So, uh, from what I've been seeing, and, and I will I will concede that you know it hasn't been a lot of focus for me. Um, 
in the last couple months anyway, but but from discussions that I have had with people, it's much more of a wait and see. So I don't think companies are doing a, a whole lot uh, to plan ahead other than maybe change the 30 days to three days or whatever it is in their procedure document. Now, you know, you mentioned that uh, OBS is a or is based out of Winnipeg. And, yep. uh, you know, I, it got me kind of thinking, we, we, we hear about GDPR so much because of the EU, it's a you know, huge collection of countries. Here in the U.S., mm-hmm. we have our various things like, like PCI compliant. Well, PCI, is, I guess, is global. Um, HIPAA, maybe. HIPAA, yeah, HIPAA yeah, is I mean, U.S. industry specific. Uh, but, you know, now that, that you're working for a, a Canadian company, uh, mm-hmm. I assume, uh, it's possible that you would uh, you know, yes, be leveraged. Yes, Win- Winnipeg, Winnipeg is in Canada. You're right. <laughs> it's been confirmed. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. It it, it's not confirmed. like in a boot in the name. So, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, for you, as somebody who's been doing consulting, at least inside of the U.S. all this time, how do you ramp mm-hmm. up for, for handling something in another country like that? How do, you, how do you discover what the regulations are? It seems like it would be a lot of learning all at once. Well, um, you know, fortunately, the work that I'm doing right now is mostly with U.S.-based companies. And a lot of my experience overseas uh, and, and uh, people in Security Weekly like to tease me because I mentioned going to Canada uh, a, a year or so ago as being overseas. Where technically, <laughs> I did cross – uh, I was going to Nova Scotia, and I did cross a body of water. So I stand by my statement. But uh, to include Canada, the U.K., uh, Germany to some degree – um, the most of the business that I've done in internationally has been U.S. owned companies that are also doing business in those foreign countries. Uh, I, although I have had a couple customers that are uh, foreign based doing business in the U.S., um, the 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 big differences are in terms of you know obviously GDR GDPR is the big one right now. Uh, knowing what the rules are, and this is true in the U.S. as well, because it varies from state to state. You need to know what the local laws are that, that govern the company, where they're headquartered, where they're doing business. Uh, they Most of the companies that I'm dealing with are larger, and they have uh, internal groups, whether it's their general counsel or whether it's their internal audit group, or they might have a, a GRC, Governance Risk and Compliance Group. They usually are pretty good about doing it on their own and being aware so usually it's me asking, hey, do you know what the laws are in all the countries you do business with? Yes, and here it is to demonstrate. Um, GDPR uh, has certainly got a lot of attraction this year because it's new. And as I said, I think a lot of companies are just kind of waiting to see what happens. Um, you know, the couple things that happened in the last – I've been traveling so much, I, it's hard to keep track. Was it Facebook or Google when where people in the last month or so were like, aha, I wonder how this is going to impact GDPR. Um, but I still think it's a wait-and-see type of effort. Uh, that's been my personal experience. Um, even though my company is based in Canada, I'm doing a lot of work in the U.S. still. M- my current customer is uh, U.S.-based, and and we're focused on PCI right now. GDPR is sort of a nice-to-have, but uh, you know, despite what people say about PCI being a bare-minimum compliance standard, you'd be surprised how hard it is to actually follow it if you're trying to do it, do it right. So. 
We're talking with Jeff Mann of Online Business Systems, and Jeff, I wanted to switch gears a little bit. You mentioned uh, you were at Wild West, uh, Wild West Hack and Fest. That's where we saw you uh, originally about a year ago, but uh, you were there again this year, and you did a talk called What Are We Doing Here? So did you mean specifically mm -hmm. what are we doing here in the middle of, of the Dakotas, or uh, <laughs> what, what was that talk about? Well, it was sort of purposely open-ended, and and what I was trying to set up was a discussion about you know Wild West Hacking Fest, great conference. It went really well the second year. You guys missed you. Uh, we were back at the cigar shop again, uh, but they moved the conference down into town, so it was all downtown. We didn't have to go, you know, traipsing a mile or two up the hill to the lodge where it was last year, but. Um, the, what I was trying to do is I, I, I go to a lot of conferences. I hear a lot of people talking, especially in the hacker conferences. Everybody's talking about vulnerability this, vulnerability that, threat this, threat that. You know, We're in the security business and so on and so forth. And it's sort of a spinoff of the talk I was talking about earlier uh, about DOD-level security. When I learned security, I learned something called the risk equation. And at, at its most fundamental level, I try to simplify things, uh, risk is a function of vulnerabilities, threats, and the way I learned it was countermeasures, but I would submit to you that you can substitute security for countermeasures. And what I was trying to introduce, is just, just to get people thinking and to get people talking, is our industry, the security industry, seems to be 90% focused on vulnerabilities, whether you're pen testers, finding them, scanning services, vulnerability management, all the different product companies that, that are out there. Certainly, there's lots of talks at conferences about, oh, I just discovered another O-Day, which is based on this vulnerability or that vulnerability. My supposition is, if you look at the risk equation, vulnerability is one variable, but security is another variable. So maybe all the things that we talk about, about vulnerabilities like uh, configuring systems, changing default settings, uh, writing secure code, maybe that's not security at all. Maybe that's just your job. You know, if you're a system administrator, secure your box. If you know, if you're the desktop administrator, secure your desktops. Security is obviously a function, but it's a part of your daily job. Whereas security, according to the risk equation, is something else. And I and I spent a little time talking about that from a focus of vulnerability, and then a little bit on threat because threat's a nice buzzword that likes to be bounced around, especially at the big vendor conferences. Um, but sort of the same thing, you know. If we identify threats, if we acknowledge that threats are people, or bad guys, or enemies, or nation states, or people out to try to make money off you, and there are people that are doing certain things, and what we often call threats in the industry, I would simply call attacks. But not to get hung up on the language, again, if that's a separate variable, if that's a separate element of an equation, then what is security? What else is there? So my, my question, what are we doing here, is we all call ourselves security professionals, but how many of us are actually doing something that's not directly vulnerability or threat related and it's that something else first what is that something else what else is there and and what are the things that we do not to say anything's right or wrong but just try to uh i i get i get frustrated when i hear all these terms bandied about it at endless conferences and trade shows and when you ask people what does that mean that you're just talking about they're like uh i don't know so i just you know i'm trying to 
you know, up everybody's game by let's define our terms. Let's agree on what the terms mean. Let's agree on what things are and aren't. Maybe it turns out we don't have this huge labor shortage in security. Maybe we just need a whole lot more developers that are taught how to write secure code. And while that's security related, that's not security. Security is something else. Well, you know, let's let's build on that uh, by stacking some industry buzzwords on it. Uh, <laughs> you know, you you mentioned the it's developers. It's time for buzzword bingo. <laughs> there we go. So get your bingo card out. Um, you know, developers. Uh, about about a I don't know two three years ago, the, a huge driver started for um, the not just the software development lifecycle, but the secure software development lifecycle, and and actually people doing secure coding practices, which made a lot of sense. But then this whole DevOps movement started, and you've got developers who even even the developers who have been trained to write secure code are now deploying infrastructure as well, using things like uh, you know where they'll do Docker environments locally based on a Docker image, and they then deploy into production with it. And what I'm what I'm finding, and I, I'm not sure, I'd be curious to see if you've been finding the same thing, is that. Mm -hmm. By taking some of the old sysops roles and pushing that onto developers who haven't really been trained for that, they're making simple mistakes. They're making mistakes on a uh, an underlying layer where their their software might be secure that they're writing, but the underlying OS isn't, or, or the way that that container is secured. Are are you finding that's a, a problem for organizations? Uh, yes. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> or do you want me to embellish? Yeah. Well, like, what are you seeing? Well, you're touching on a, a, a lot of things, you know, in your in your one example, uh, and these are things that observations that I've made in my in the last couple of years going to too many conferences and trade shows. One is, um, you know, flipping what I was just talking about around. There's a lot of people that have jobs that are important to this thing we call security, uh, and you know, within an organization in particular, they very often don't talk to themselves, talk, don't talk to each other. You know, they're silos. Um, I see this very much when I do PCI compliance assessments because part of that process is interviewing all the people that are responsible for all the different things that you're supposed to do for PCI. And so when we're talking about, uh, you know, endpoints and desktops, we talk to the desktop people. When we talk to, uh, you know, configurations of servers, you know, and suspend for a minute the whole docker and going to the cloud that's you know let's table that for a minute but if i talk to the server administrators and you know and we talk to them about their boxes that's fine if i ask them well what's running on these servers they're like well i don't know i just you know i just keep the operating system running uh but even like talking to dbas to understand the databases that store the sensitive data that they're trying to protect that have that have built the databases and the schemas and the and the tables and and where all the data is supposed to go and you start asking them well, you know what's the purpose or function of all this stuff they're like i don't know i just you know they tell me to build a you know a field that's this wide and this tall and that's what i do so there's a lot of silos a lot of lack of communication and and what what that leads to is there's a lot of assumptions that somebody else has got this covered and that goes again back to the beginnings of this thing we call internet security where all these next networks were functioning and we didn't have to worry about security but all of a sudden we plug into the internet well uh, the firewall guy they'll they'll cover that we'll have some security people that build a secure perimeter and they'll take care of security so that we don't have to think about it or don't have to talk about it or don't have to do anything but you know, repeat that in a thousand different ways in a thousand different places. You know, to use your example of software development, you know, what's wrong with software developers knowing how to write secure code? A, what's wrong with um, 
secu- you know, software developers being asked to understand a little bit more the 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 boxes that they're going to be running the, the applications on, the building blocks, the tools that they're using, the infrastructure. Uh, I can I can argue both sides. Yeah, it makes sense that they understand that. That's going to make them a better coder. But that used to be somebody else's job in somebody else's silo, and they have no. Uh, experience in that, so you're 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 highlighting an example of uh, of the fallout of these silos. There's people that know how to do, you know, this that they know how to do, and they assume that other things are being taken care of, and everybody else is the same thing. Uh, you know, extend that to the cloud. You know, go to the cloud. Put your you know in the in the early days it was your websites, your e-commerce systems. Put them in the cloud. It'll be cheaper. You don't have to maintain the boxes. Put your infrastructure in the cloud. It'll be cheaper. You don't have to spend money on all that hardware. Read the small print. You're still responsible for security. You're still responsible for you know doing all the things that you have to do. Uh, that automatically isn't flipped over to the cloud provider. Uh, but if you want us to do that, that's fine. It'll, you'll just have to pay for it. And then slowly people under, start to realize, people, organizations, oh, it's not as cheap as, as what I initially thought it was going to be. There's a lot of add-on when you start factoring in all the things that really have to be there. You know, it's like going to a, 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 a car lot. You want to buy a new car and you get a great deal on it. And then the, the, the dealer says, oh, you, you wanted to have doors on the car? You want to have an engine under the hood? Oh, well, that's going to cost you. Maybe that's a little bit extreme, but you know, hopefully that gives you the idea. Yep, and I, I do have a buzzword quota I've got to hit, so let me try and, and ramp this up <laughs> a little bit. So uh, you know, the, the one that I've been seeing a lot is thanks to, thanks to methodologies like Agile, where companies are, are trying to put out changes as quickly as they can, and they're doing continuous integration, continuous deployment, so CI/CD. You mm-hmm. can bring in a whole team of physical pen testers. They can they can run a full gamut of testing over a period of a week or two or whatever, and, and find all sorts of vulnerabilities. But if your code changes every single week, right. it's near impossible for these companies to stay on top of that and ensure security across the lifecycle of their software across the, the entire course of a. Uh, a month, better yet, a year, a decade. So, uh, you know what? What are what are you seeing companies do to to try and ensure security even even after a test has been done? Like if everything's changing. Well, you're mentioning you know quite a few of the things that they do, and and I uh, you know I'm a curmudgeon, and I I don't like the sea changes that are happening. But it, you know, it's certainly hard to apply a traditional engineering software development model to today's world, where there's so much emphasis on getting code out quickly and and making all these changes on the fly. So, you know, what I consider to be sort of fundamental concepts a gener- I'll say a generation ago, a mere five or ten years ago, where you do everything in development, and then you have you know procedures where you test it all, and then w- once everything passes, you promote it into production after you've scrubbed everything. You know that's sort of what is prescribed in most SDLCs. Oh, and SDLCs say that you think about security right from the very beginning, and and that you know, always it, happens. It, it, it goes <laughs> every step of the way in the design phase, and in the the development phase, and in the implementation phase, and so forth. I don't. 
don't know how anybody does it other than you throw up your hands and you do what I think is the least efficient thing to do. But if they're making money on it, I guess who can argue? But to test for vulnerabilities, to have to hire pen testers and application pen testers and and you know whatever automated tools you can get on your own or you hire somebody to run the automated tools for you, it's still an after the fact thing. And that, as a security professional, bugs me that, you know, you're, you're doing it backwards. Um, but, you know, the concession seems to be, but, you know, the, there's so much demand, there's so much pressure to get things out the door quickly, quickly seems to supersede doing it securely. So, you know, one of the big arguments uh, that I have with Keith Hoodlet, I, I w well, discussions, I wouldn't say it's an argument. He's passionate that there's no such thing as DevSecOps, that security is actually built into DevOps. Uh, and he wants me to go out and buy a book, but I refuse to buy a book <laughs> and, and become an expert on it. But I, I recently worked at a company that could be construed as a software development company. I won't say who it was, but you can figure it out. And... I asked for the three years that I was there, where's a copy of our SDLC? Because I was working with a lot of developers trying to fine-tune our products for PCI. Um, never saw one. I, I'm pretty sure it didn't exist. But they had their methods and they had their ways and they did a lot of the steps that you would expect in a software development company. Um, but it wasn't written down as far as I could tell what the procedures were. There was a lot of, uh, you know... Uh, knowledge that was built in into the organizations that were responsible for it. And in the time that I was there and, and since then, and again, I'm not trying to point fingers, but just using it as an example, they had some, some significant issues with some version releases here and there where they, you know, some, some more embarrassing than others, and it was all handled. But if that's the way everybody wants to do it, who am I to argue? You know, let's, let's, let's do after the fact. Uh, I guess one other thing to mention which seems to be, uh, you know, in the early days we used to call it just beta testing, uh, but now we call it bug bounties. So that seems to be a popular thing. <laughs> and and I've had you know lengthy discussions. Uh, I forget who we were interviewing on Security Weekly, but you know I finally came to the realization: oh, bug bunny is just sort of like outsourced pen testing or open source pen testing. Uh, okay, now now it all starts to begin to make sense again. There's nuanced differences. I understand all that, but essentially. Essentially, again, you're putting your code out there and letting somebody else try to find the bugs, and and paying a bounty for for many companies that's uh, more cost effective, or, or it probably more realistically, it's just more pragmatic. It's the way that they have to do it uh, because there are so many pressures to to get things out the door, to get the new features added, to, to be nimble and agile, and 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 stay ahead of the game. If, if you had bug bounty on your bingo card, too, that's the last square. Scratch, uh, scratch congratulations. <laughs> All we missed there uh, to to really make Don angry was AI and machine learning. Yeah, so that, that would have hopefully uh, Don will get to those uh, topics <laughs> in a second here. Uh, I did want to ask you, you mentioned uh, how much you love change. Uh, uh -huh. And I, uh, uh, I I noticed on your bio, um, you're one of the hosts on Security Weekly, and I was looking at your bio yep. on that page, and it mentions that you were on the first penetration testing team, uh, the red team at, at the NSA. And I'm guessing you probably can't tell us any cool stories about that. But I am curious just to see um, your your take on, on how pen testing has evolved um, since that time, because I guess you, you kind of helped <laughs> come up with the, the procedure originally for that. 
Well, I actually do talk about it, and and I'll try to condense it a little bit and give highlights. Uh, I did a talk that basically told the story of the beginnings of the red team at uh, at NSA uh, a couple months ago at a conference called GERCON up in uh, Michigan. And the title of the talk is called More Tales from the Cryptanalyst, because two years ago I did a talk about my earlier days at NSA, which did was which was a lot of crypto stuff, and I called that Tales from the Crypt Analyst. But uh, you know, when I was putting that talk together, I, I actually had some fun with it, and I'm going to give you guys a pop quiz in a minute. Uh, but I, I was trying to go back and and figure out, well, gee, what you know, what did we have and what didn't we have? Because there's every time I hear people talking about pen testing these days, it's well, you got to have Kali Linux and you got to have Metasploit and you got to have Meterpreter and you got to have this and you got to have that and run all that and you'll pop boxes. And I keep thinking, man. When we started, we didn't have any of that stuff. And so I was like going back and trying to remember what did we have and what didn't we have. So as an example, I, I left uh, and, you know, all this, all of this beginnings of pen testing was in the early 90s, 92, 93-ish range. And I left NSA in 96. NMAP was not published until 1997. So we didn't even have... NMAP when we were doing our thing, you know, being the first uh, red team at NSA. Uh, what we did have was uh, source code, and this was prior to Linux. So we had Unix source code. Uh, we had uh, knowledge of, of how Unix worked and features of Unix, because a lot of the early exploitation we did was just taking advantage of default settings and configurations and uh, what have to be called features of the operating system that you either knew about it and and it was all tricks to get uh, a root shell or elevate your privileges to root. Um, so here's the pop quiz. Uh, when we were doing uh, scanning of networks to try to do port scanning, we used to use a tool called Strobe. Do you guys ever heard of Strobe? It's okay to say no. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to let Don um, take yeah. these because I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm the pretty face. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Don's here for the brains. Strobe, Don. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. All right. Well, Strobe was uh, an open source tool that was used to do primarily uh, TCP port scanning in the days before NMAP. There was a couple other tools, but that was a very popular one. And I was looking at it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Strobe. I hadn't thought about it in probably 20 years. And because uh, NMAP came along, and N NMAP was so much better. Uh, but I was looking at when was the original release date of Strobe, and I noticed who the author of Strobe was. And when and somebody reminded me because I was telling them this story uh, actually back in Deadwood. When you launched Strobe, you got a little uh, you know screen pop up, and this was this was not GUI. This was in a shell, and it said Strobe copyright whatever year it was written by, and then it was the name of the author. So here's my pop quiz for you, and if you didn't don't remember Strobe, you're not going to get the answer. But the author <laughs> of Strobe was um, I'm going to go with Pete Sampras. Oh yeah, yeah. I think World class tennis player and security researcher. Yeah, nothing was Agassi. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the author of Strobe was none other than Julian Assange. Whoa! Really? And when I saw that, was I was, he like, was like twelve. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's why I always knew I knew his name, you know, because he's been in the news a little bit lately. And I always knew I knew his name, but I didn't know why. And it and it wasn't until I was looking up the you know who wrote Strobe. I'm like, that's why I know the name Julian Assange. Hmm. So. 
you know, in a, you know, in an earlier life, he was a hacker for good and, and put out tools that were used for uh, network analysis. Let's say. Uh, but anyway, so that's one story. Uh, it, uh, the I, I'm actually thinking about putting together a talk that just talks about the early days of pen testing in general. We didn't have methodologies. We didn't have SANS courses. And I've had many conversations with Ed Scotus to answer your question about how pen testing has evolved. I actually don't think it has evolved uh, much or, or not as much as, as I think it should. In fact, my, my, my foray back into the hacker community um, which has just been in the last couple years, started with me going to DerbyCon and Ed Scotus giving a keynote entitled How to Give the World's Best Pen Tests. And I thought, well, gee, I used to do pen testing. It'll be cool to see how things have evolved. And and I've Ed knows this story. I've talked to him personally about it, so I'm not, you know, I'm not uh, uh, trolling him uh, much in telling you this story. But... Uh, I was kind of disappointed in his talk because he never actually defined what a pen test was. He never talked about goals of the pen test or what the scope of a pen test was. He kind of talked about, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, you've got time and resources and you get lots of juicy findings and and you you just get to run amok and, and do all sorts of cool stuff. And I was sitting in the crowd thinking, you know, my idea of a perfect pen test is you fail. And and uh, I my first talk that I gave, uh, which has been a few years ago now, again since I sort of got back into the hacker community, was do we still need pen testing? And my contention is, and it still is to this day, with very few exceptions, if you're doing a pen test to discover vulnerabilities, you're not really needing a pen test. There's other ways that you can discover vulnerabilities. It's not cost effective. A pen test more often than not these days should be when you're ready for it, when you have the maturity as an organization, you want to have a live fire test. You want to test your defenses. You want to test your detection capabilities. You want to detect your, to test your response capabilities whether they're automated or manual, uh, that to me is the ideal pen test, is you're ready for it. And and the idea of doing vulnerability discovery and, and, and finding misconfigurations and default passwords, and I've had many conversations with many, you know, very elite respected pen testers that, you know, I ask them, well, you know, how do you usually break in? And it's, you know, there's a top five that usually has something to do with default settings, default passwords, trust settings, things like that. And I'm like, wouldn't you love to do more? Would you love to do different? And they all say, yeah, we would love to get beyond that. So I don't think pen testing has evolved or not, but it, it we've gotten into this rut as an industry as using pen testing and for that matter, vulnerability scanning tools to, uh, discover what's wrong with your network rather than do all the things that you need to do in terms of processes and procedures and, and educating your developers and your admins to doing the security things that they should be doing as part of their job anyway. And then pen testing and vulnerability scanning is much more of a, a safety net and a, and a trial by fire, a live fire test. That, that's my idealistic view of the world. And I, and I realize that's not the way it works most of the time. But you asked. Yeah, it, well, it's <laughs> tough to say if you have a... Uh, 
a pen test where you fail to get in, does that mean that you have a great network or a terrible pen tester? It's really I guess, <laughs> tough to tell. Boom. Gonna... So that's that's like the 800-pound gorilla of yeah. pen testing. E- even if you do break in, you're not you're never. And, and most pen testers, you know, it's in their it's in their L- SLA or their T's and C's. They're not guaranteeing that they found all the problems. So you can pass or fail a pen test, and it doesn't really mean anything because you could be popped tomorrow by something that they didn't look at, didn't encounter. Uh, you know, some new vulnerability or O-Day comes out. But what they do often do, which is good, it is 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 find the low-hanging fruit. Unfortunately, it's stuff that you should have known about or should have prevented already, like all the default settings and, and default passwords and things like that. But, you know, there's pen testers that still, you know, make a good living off of discovering that for their customers. But the really good pen testers that have really good customers they they've moved on and and it's much more of a cat and mouse game where they're challenged by okay the, they're ready for us our customers know all our tricks we've got to find something new we've got to come up with something new and, and sometimes they get in and sometimes they don't but those are very mature organizations and i and i think they're they're the one percent and there's 99 percent of companies out there that need security first can't afford that caliber of a pen test and really, there's more cost-effective ways of doing security, I believe, than starting with the pen test. So I'll never be invited to another hacker conference again. <laughs> but that's my opinion. Yeah. Hey, well, Jeff, uh, so our, our viewers, our listeners know they can see you uh, every week as one of the hosts on Security Weekly. But if they want to learn more about online business systems, uh, where can they go to do that? So our website is obsglobal.com, and our practice is called RSP, Risk, Security, and Privacy. So if you uh, go to the website, there's you know some kind of drop-down that says RSP or Risk, Security, and Privacy. That's our practice. Uh, we have consultants that have most, most of us have been doing this for 20 years or more. So it's a pretty senior, senior uh, set of consultants. We have a pen testing team that uh, I think does a pretty decent job. You know, they're not as well known. As, as some of the companies we're familiar with, but that's okay. I don't think pen testing companies necessarily need to be well-known. And uh, we've also uh, recently, because we're trying to reach more of those 99% in companies, we're uh, venturing into managed security services uh, as an offering, more of like, uh, I think, on, on lines of monitoring and detection and response, as well as a little bit of uh, virtual CISO. But, you know, we're trying to, you know, we have the expertise and we're trying to get it to as many companies as possible in as cost-effective way as possible. Very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us today, and, and I hope uh, it doesn't take a year for us to uh, uh, talk to you again, maybe at, at one of the, the conferences uh, that, that we're both at or something uh, between now and then. Yeah, definitely. A, a year's too long, and I missed you guys in Vegas this past summer, so hopefully we'll, we'll connect somewhere soon. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for taking the time, and uh, stay tuned on the Technado. We'll be right back after this. My name is Dana Morrison. I'm the IT director at Grace Christian School in Raleigh, North Carolina. IT directors often hoard so much knowledge that it's hard for their team members to learn. IT Pro TV has given us the ability to level up our technicians to a point where they can decide this is important for me to learn. I would recommend IT Pro TV uh, to any IT team. It's just a great tool uh, for any IT professional. 
All right, welcome back to TechNado, and that, that was a great interview with Jeff, and I feel like it's one of those that if we didn't have a constraint of how much memory we had on our disk drives here, we, we could have talked for you know <laughs> four or five hours. That was, that was a lot of cool stuff. I'm, I'm already thinking of questions I wish I'd asked, like uh, you know, when he started working for a Canadian company, how long did it take him to learn to speak Canadian? Sure. Like, was that hard to make that adjustment? Yeah, the language barrier's got to be tough, and and the the you mayo betcha. the mayo on the fries and the and the poutine all all the things I mean ketchup chips there's so much about Canada that you have to to learn on the fly I have no idea what what you just said <laughs> but uh, no that was a cool one and I think uh, hopefully we can find a way to get Jeff on here a few more times it it sounds like we might uh, cross paths at a few conferences uh, coming up in 2019 so hopefully uh, we'll be able to to hear a little bit more and and uh, and, and talk uh, in a little more detail about some of those things that we talked about. Uh, on the broad level today, and and hopefully we'll be able to complete our uh, buzzword bingo cards. We were close. Yeah, and I, I really think we need to manufacture those. Somebody probably already has that, yeah. but uh, or a drinking game or something. It it could be. It could really. It could revolutionize the way we do interviews. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of it, if if it's an interview like that, it will. Uh be stumbling over our words by then. But uh, thank you so much uh, to Jeff for joining us there. And But we want to let you know about a few things before you go. First of all, we've got some webinars coming up. Uh, definitely head over to itpro.tv slash webinars. You can see all the ones coming up that you can sign up for, as well as all of the archived webinars uh, that we have on there. So you can go back and watch any of them on demand and learn um, all about whatever it is we were talking about uh, that you missed. And we'll definitely... Uh, you know, have, have some great new topics coming up to sign up for as well. Uh, also, I want to let you know about a special offer from IT Pro TV. Uh, we're doing a 30% off promo for anyone watching or listening to the Technado. Uh, to go to go.itpro.tv slash Technado, you can get that coupon code. We've also got a seven-day free trial when you sign up for an individual premium or standard monthly membership. So uh, head on over there and check us out. Can't hurt. No, no obligation. Cancel anytime. All the buzzwords. We're Operators are standing I'm by. Do, I'm going to do a marketing. You wait. Yeah, I'm going to do a marketing uh, uh, card there as well, and that'll be the backside of it. So <laughs> act, act now. Um, hurry. Offer supplies last. Well, supplies last. Uh, get on that. So, Don, anything else before we go today? <laughs> but wait, there's more. Oh. Uh, no, that, that's all we've got for this week. Uh, I do want to remind you all to reach out to us on social media if you have any questions, suggestions. Uh, if you know anybody who would make a great interview for IT Pro TV, for Technado, for for any of the various um, commercial medias that we create, uh, we always love to hear from you, the public. That helps us to basically figure out what content to throw on the show. It's always a lot of fun to interview people, so we're always looking for new New uh, interview victims, subjects, whatever. Yeah, on all of our commercial media. <laughs> that's right. It's our commercial media empire. I think that's, right? a, that's a word. Yeah. Yeah. All <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this commercial media today. And we'll see you right back here on TechNado next week. Thanks. Thanks.